Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Cambria, accelerating the development and adoption of impactful robots. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. And today we have on board member of the Homeland Security Foundation, the chief strategist for Sultan Interactive Group, and an all-around Bitcoin advocate, Mr. Oz Sultan. And yesterday I put out the tweet that said Oz was coming on the show today and got a lot of feedback. So I'm excited for you to hear this conversation, hear what he has to say, and I'm looking forward to your feedback. But before we get into the conversation, please go to YouTube channel Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron, where you can check out the previews and the roundups to every podcast episode that we put out. In the previews, I just talk about how we got to this point of having interviews or why we decided to interview or have these people on the show. In the roundup, I give my personal opinions about projects, ideas, thought, people, and what have you. So please check it out on YouTube, subscribe, and leave some comments. Also, go to Crypto101Podcast.com. There, join our Facebook page, our Instagram, our Twitter. You can send us an email. You can become a patron. Patrons, thank you very much for being patrons. Backbone of the group, if we don't have advertisement, you keep the show going. And also, don't forget to check out Aaron Paul at ICO101. Now, without further ado, here is Mr. Oz Sultan wrapping out with me. And enjoy. As Sultan, board member of Homeland Security Foundation and chief strategist of Sultan Interactive Group, welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks for having me. Oz, what I want to do today is I want to get to know you a little bit. We can go through Oz 101, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about how we got connected. People heard you on the Bad Crypto Podcast talking about there needs to be more 101 information in the space, and well, our listeners reached out and connected us, so I thought that was really cool. And the third thing I want to touch on is you are a unifier. You take the perceived differences between people and make people realize that they're not really differences. And I want to get your ideas on just living, philosophy, life, humanity, and how blockchain fits into that. What do you think? Sure. If you think over the past, I guess, four or five hundred years of commerce, right, which this is really what blockchain has kind of come in to sort of disrupt. We've always had a, a middleman of, of some sort, and we've always had some sort of middleman creditor of some sort. And what that's done is that's created these dependent environments across uh, major economic systems, which largely what I see is this, it benefits larger organizations and it holds smaller organizations down. So you want to know a bit of my background. I've been venture financed a couple of times. I've had you know one or two positive upside exits. I've had some really bad ones. I've spent about a decade on the information architecture side of things through being either the director of technology or the head of e-commerce for companies that were in shipping and transportation and logistics. And then I was in the music industry for about four or five years. And that was, you know, working on 
really kind of the start of where digital music came from. My CEO, Bob Higgins, rest in peace, had told Steve Jobs to go F himself on a conference call. And this was, you know, back when the competitors were Apple Music and Liquid Audio. And one of the ideas that myself and Julian Van Ehrlich, who was the SVP there at the time, had had was, hey, what if we could take these 50,000 square foot stores and downsize them to like 4,000 square feet and put 20 people on the floor and have everyone with basically with Apple devices and just be, you know, you could download all of your music there and facilitate like this technology revolution, so to speak. And our, our CEO said no. You know, that was like kind of the first 10 years of my career. And then this thing called Web 2.0 came up in about 2005. And, um, you know, from 2005 to 2008, I went through some transitions and working with a couple of Wall Street companies, JP Morgan, Moody's, and then going over and saying, well, you know, social media makes a lot more sense for where a lot of information is going, at least front offices. So I was at Sapient for a while, ended up leaving there and went to The Economist. And for two years, I built all the digital products over at The Economist Intelligence Unit, which mm. was everything from, you know, we, we built a video game called Energy Bill, which was based on Economist data for Chevron to just a whole suite of products with the Barbarian Group. And a lot of these places don't exist anymore. The Barbarian Group was sold to Samsung. And then transitioned kind of from there because, you know, social media was cool for a couple of years. But again, it it's a lot of what I've done is it's, it's data, transformative tech, you know, things that kind of make things new and got myself more involved in sort of big data through that for a couple of years. That led to some research that we did on ISIS on the blockchain, which was kind of one of my earlier forays into kind of looking at what is blockchain technology, like how is it being used in nefarious ways and Mm -hmm. You know, what can we do to sort of stop those types of things, right? Because one of the biggest problems you have is you start looking at, you know, not just Bitcoin, but Monero and Zcash and Dash and, you know, a, a number of untraceable cryptocurrencies inside of the market. And that's really where we still have kind of like a lot of dark actors. I mean, if you think about the dark web and you think about Onion and Tor and, you know, how people navigate these things, mm -hmm. those are a lot of the currencies that are being used inside of those ecosystems. And so that was some of the stuff we're trying to disrupt really around two factors. One was terrorism and the other was stopping human trafficking. And a lot of what that led me to was some of the conversations I'm having now and what I'm doing now. You know, I'm the head of crypto products for the blockchain terminal. You know, what we've been trying to do is to basically build a baseline of sort of compliance technology inside of a wild west of trading and then really kind of build standards for a trading ecosystem so that you can kind of grow that the same way Wall Street grew. The analogy I like to use a lot is that where we have come to inside of blockchain tech today is that you have the ability to create financial instruments like you did in the early 1920s, right? You're creating all of these new ways to create money, in essence, and, mm -hmm. and to fund things. And we have the velocity of creating capital portfolios or creating hedge funds like you did in the early 1970s. And that's coupled with the speed of technology of 1996. And I'm going to add one more piece to it today because I've been thinking about this. And it's got the social media drivers of 2008, 2009. And all of those four pieces are happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. 
And because it is all of this together at the same time, it, it has radically changed the way that we kind of look at technology being transformative. When I was in social media, we used to say things like three months in social is a year in the regular world. Well, in crypto, three weeks in crypto is a year mm -hmm. in, in the regular world. I, I mean, right. I remember I spoke at Developer Week with Miko Matsumura maybe two months ago, and from there we were talking about B token and you know some of the hacks that had gone on and B has kind of come back since then i don't know if they've necessarily delivered on their mandate of wanting to be like the decentralized airbnb but they're definitely moving down that path and inside of that same time and token i've seen two or three additional players come into the market to just disrupt housing or disrupt hotels mm -hmm. So if you think about what I've done, I've gone from tech, I've gone into social, I've gone into big data, and then and now into crypto, which for me were sort of logical transitions because I like to innovate and I like to learn things and I like to bring people together and get them to, to sort of like figure out how to work in, in bigger problems. And, you know, what I've always found is that after you've done like a two-year build or a one-year build or worked in some really complicated technologies, while I was working in fintech, we did stuff with SAP and other things like that everything becomes operationalized so really the the requirements of your job go from you know maybe being 80% to 120% active to being like 40% and i think that's the state of affairs of where we find blockchain really being revealed to us right so the masses of the world that typically understand the systems that they have to go to to borrow money to buy things are going to be radically disrupted inside of the next eight years. And we actually have, for the first time since I would say probably roughly about 1990, the ability for small banks and small lending to really kind of come back into ecosystems and environments mm -hmm. that we live in and change our neighborhoods. Outside of working in crypto, and you mentioned bringing people together, I sit on the board of the Muslim Jewish Solidarity Committee in New York City. I'm working on my own project called Our House, which I'm trying to bring together Christians, Jews, and Muslims. Why? Because I've never seen the amount of divisiveness in my life as we have right now, largely because people live in their own isolated silos and refuse to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And if we don't break down those kinds of things inside of a generation, we are going to have the type of animosity that you saw Gen Xers growing up with inside of the post-me generation become far more exacerbated with the fact that people don't necessarily talk to each other, they talk at each other through digital devices. So I see crypto as kind of this utility that allows us to disrupt a lot of these silos, these old systems, and to also change the way that we do things. If you think about smaller communities, and again, I'm in Harlem, and I'm also the Republican district leader for the 70th Assembly District, and we're trying to kind of get the party together around local candidates. I have black female candidate running for Congress. We've got another female candidate who's running for Assembly. We've got a Latino candidate who's running next week, but he's been endorsed by Cheech Marin. And Cheech and Chong. <laughs> right. um, I mean, like, this is the state of the Republican politics on the, on the local level, but a lot of what I see and, and has been the problem for a long period of time is we don't have the banking capability, we don't have the lending capability, 
when they do have it, you know, it's kind of a nebulous process for people of color to kind of dive through that. And I think that lumping people of color and women together, that we have a necessity inside of not just the United States, but maybe even a global perspective to increase not only the education on this digital divide, but now on this new crypto divide so that people can actually do the things that they want to do, that they can build the things that they want to build, that they can create things that they want to create and they can do it inside of a reasonable time frame. And I think crypto lending, which is starting to come up, is something that can do that. Because if you really think about this, okay, those of us that work in tech, we might need to raise 100,000, 500,000, a million dollars to start a pilot, to start a technology platform, to roll out some crypto technology. If you come to the hood or you come to some of the inner cities or you come to rural America, $10,000 will allow someone to start a hair salon, a right. local diner. Right. And I mean, what, what we're talking about is two Bitcoin. Right. Okay. Like we're saying two Bitcoin lent to the right person could allow them to completely and radically upend. Change um, their life. Change their community. Yeah. But I'll tell you this. Like I know this one sister here who's working on a, a juice brand. It's called Nini and it's based upon some sort of African juices that she had back home. But she's building it here and she's taken like $10,000 and she's parlayed that into potentially about $50,000 worth of value to deliver on these mm. things. Right on. And that's what I think people don't understand about the blockchain. The blockchain allows three things to happen. It allows the elimination of middlemen. It allows the creation of value for people who never had the capability to, to create that value. And it allows for the disruption of traditional purchasing systems, traditional lending systems, and realistically, the creation of new opportunities. I mean, you could say it didn't exist 30 minutes ago, and you introduce someone to crypto, and they have all this opportunity. Right. Um, and so it gets to like the second question you had, which was, why do we need crypto education? So I have one of my offices in a CUNY incubator, and I always get asked to teach classes. And I, I've taught at Baruch, and I've taught at John Jay College, and I've lectured all over the place. If anyone's interested, next month I'm giving a talk on crypto and extremism up at Bard College on July 2nd. But... You know, one of the sort of issues that we kind of have to work through is everyone wants to know about crypto, but they don't understand what the basic stuff is. They also don't understand the basics of how do you get someone a wallet? What is the best wallet? Also, how is that person going to have to deal with the fact that they have to store keys private? They have to store recovery information private and that they have to operate as really their own bank because... The beauty of crypto is that it disrupts all this stuff, but the complexity of crypto is that you, you basically replace all those systems with something that lives in your pocket or it lives on your computer or it lives in some side of tech ecosystem that's connected to you, right? right? And that's where I see the need for education. I mean, and I think we need it on three levels. One is we need it with, I guess I'll call it middle Gen X through boomers. So I'll give you an example. There's, I had an intern last year, her name is Sherry, and Sherry was getting her master's degree. She was maybe like 48. Okay. All right. And she's getting her master's degree, black woman from the neighborhood. And, you know, I gave her a chance and was like working with her and doing some 
some stuff. And she just didn't know where to start with a lot of this stuff. So a lot of what you have to do is you have to think about how you're going to take some of this education and break it down into bite-sized chunks and walk folks through that. Mm -hmm. In that same sort of age group, I've got church groups and I've got synagogue groups and I've got mosque groups here in Harlem where they're interested. You know, I don't necessarily have the bandwidth, but I have the ability to put people together so that education and training could be deployed in a meaningful sense and then these folks could get the benefit of the crypto understanding and everyone here is trying to get the come up right they're trying to <laughs> they're trying well, i mean you know, you know it's true it's true right you know they're trying to figure out okay well how can i invest a little and make a little bit of money how mm -hmm. can i take that little bit of money and turn that into a down payment for a house then how can i build institutional or generational wealth a, a little bit you know just for my kids so that they don't have to struggle as much as i did mm -hmm. and so what i really see is that that first need of crypto to educate the elders right then there's crypto education that's needed across millennials and the remainder of gen x why? Because millennials don't trust stocks, they don't trust bonds, they barely trust banks. And crypto has the immediate ability to give you that Venmo-like functionality for paying for everything in your life, but now managing all of that outside of a bank ecosystem and doing it in a manner and fashion where it's just treated like cash. Like mm -hmm. the, the bigger tax question up until really last week was, is this being treated like a stock? And for your listeners, why does that matter? If you have a stock or you have some other instrument like that, when you take that stock and you cash it out, you are required to pay 40% capital gains tax on cashing that stock out. But however, if you cash it in a portfolio, leave it in portfolio and transfer it to something else, you can minimize or reduce your capital gains exposure. Most regular people don't know this because most regular people don't do their taxes. They walk into an HR block office that's only there for two months and they're like, um, help. So, right, right. you know, the fact now that Bitcoin and Ether are going to be treated like cash, okay, they're not being treated like securities, means that you can literally file your taxes with this stuff like cash. And what are the other implications of this? And now we'll get to where the big impact of Bitcoin is. It's one thing for millennials, but I really think that the bigger impact is for what we call Generation Z and what they're statistically calling Homeland. And Homeland is everyone born 2005 forward. Why? Because if you're in New York and you're fresh to death and you're running your own Instagram pop-up shop with Supreme, what is the problem? You're walking around with $2,000 in cash in your pocket. Mm -hmm. Okay. At any point in time, we have these young brothers and sisters that are, you know, they've got the hustle, they're industrious, they're trying to get the come up, and they shouldn't have to be their own banks in that manner and fashion. And if they were able to get into crypto, not only would they have the ability to just by having it sit in a wallet increase their own value as crypto went up, but then they have the opportunity to do all sorts of other stuff. They themselves could like go to legal Zoom and knock out a couple contracts and be like, all right, well, four of you want to borrow $250 each to pick up a pair of obviously not Jordans, but maybe Jordans if they got there early enough in the morning and, and resell, <laughs> resell them, right? <laughs> it's like, you were there at 6 a.m. You know? uh, but that's, you know, there's the opportunities for all of these different ecosystems to function with 
crypto in a manner and fashion that it actually makes it easier, it makes it safer, and it eliminates the middleman being the bank you have to deal with. But also at the same point in time, it simplifies that process. Mm -hmm. And then um, one thing that we're going to try and pilot in Harlem, I'm talking with Pastor Jack, who's part of the Republican Party here. We're having these discussions about how can we go and start talking to gang members and Here's my, my problem with American gangs. American gangs could do more for their communities if they understood that they didn't have to sell a bad product. Well, I think what we could do is give them crypto, which is a better product. And given how industrious most of these folks are, if they were to understand that they could like literally just sit and trade online, you'd still make more money in crypto. And it's legal. Hmm. And the opportunity to do it is to do it from your phone, and you don't have to carry a GAT, and you don't have to be looking over your shoulder, and you can pay for your baby's moms, and you know you can do all these different <laughs> things. But is this not society at the end of the day? Is this not like what we're trying to do? Like right. everyone's just trying to live their life. But now you can do this with this new technology that's also currency that also if you were to start researching, you could potentially do more with. And that's where I think that education has to come in. And that's where I kind of like want to hear your thoughts on that a little bit. I think this is the first time I didn't have to ask a follow-up question in 20 minutes of a podcast <laughs> so we, we, we know who the pro here is this is why you're the lecturer and the speaker and you're everywhere but oh, thanks man you you said a lot here and i've been listening earnestly and taking notes first question you were born and raised in in new york yeah no, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. I, actually, this is interesting. My dad came here on a steel company visa in the 60s after living through war and some other stuff overseas. So, like, my dad's family is Saudi Arabian. My mom's family is Indo-Persian. And I'm the product of war. What year? Uh, I was born in 73. Oh, okay, okay. I was born in 79, and I'm from Cleveland. And we were both from pretty much the same area, actually. You know, the Midwest, steel towns. What kind of upbringing did you have? How was it? I mean, I'm, 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 I'm mixed. My biological father is Nigerian, came over here for school, and he went back after he got his bachelor's degree at Kent State University. And my mom is Polish-Iris. And then my mom remarried to a white man, and I had you know a brother and a sister and grew up in a white family, mm -hmm. usually in white neighborhoods. But being biracial, born in 79, growing yep. up in the 80s, it was interesting. One of my best buds, Dwayne Wells, is also biracial. And back then, we called it mulatto, you know, because yes. like, we, we, we grew up with the whole, you know, like, most people don't know this, but, you know, octroon, quatroon. I mean, like, this was stuff we grew up with. Mm -hmm. And for the longest period of time, you know, like, my first black girlfriend, like, her mother didn't understand what race I was and said I was just high yellow. Um, <laughs> because because there, there was, I was, like, the first, you know, like, Muslim kid in our school district. Mm -hmm. Like, I went to yeshiva for two years because, like, in the late 70s, we didn't have much of a Muslim community. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of started coming together and, you know, all these different cultural differences because... What people don't understand is everyone's like, oh, Muslims are one group. I'm like, no. First, we're divided by background. Then we're divided by race. Then we're divided by ethnicity. Then right. we're divided by, you know, like, what are you Sunni? Are you Shia? Right. Are you Ahmadi? Are you this? Are you that? And then, you know, there's like local issues, too. And so I remember like fundraising and putting up the first bricks for the first mosque that, you know, we we had up in Monroeville. And, you know, I remember all this, this stuff. And I, I got to tell you, like growing up, it was tough. You know, at least being black, like you guys had a history here, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't have a history here. 
And then, you know, you're saying that you're African, too. Like, I live in Harlem, and there's a big difference in between being black and being African, because we have Nigerians and Somalis and Eritreans and a few other communities that are just, like, right around me. Like, Petite Senegal is 116th Street that's, like, you know, just down the block. Mm-hmm. But there's this huge distance in between, and I don't think people get this either. It's just you could be African and you can be black American, but they're two wholly different people, cultures, races almost. So, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, it definitely shaped your personality, the way that you view the world, the way you view people, the way you view conflict. How does blockchain, when you saw something like blockchain, when you saw something like, and you're in one of the most diverse places in the world right now in New York City, how does blockchain reinforce that way you developed growing up with all of that diversity and all that i'm gonna assume conflict and all of that conflict resolution that you had to learn while growing up in pittsburgh i've been doing conflict resolution since i was like four years old because <laughs> yeah i mean you know how this stuff is it's like stop trying to kill my colored friend you know and we had to deal with real life situations like that. I mean, this generation thankfully doesn't to the degree that we did, but you and I grew up in that part of the world where it was kind of okay to be colored, but don't get caught in the wrong neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot has changed, but a lot hasn't. And I think part of the problem is it it just goes to poverty. It goes to economic discourse that has been laid out for a long period of time. Like, I have problems with a lot of things that I think need to be changed. Like, the left side of the aisle, you know, there's a lot of yoga pants wearing Obama supporters. They're the ones that lock their doors when a black guy walks past their car and are the first ones to call the police on him in his own neighborhood. I have that issue, and then in my own party, I have the issue that, you know, we do know that there's some racists out there, but at least the joke I make in the Republican Party is I can point at them. You know, I know that guy over there is racist, and these people aren't. But the the problem (laughs) I do have with the left, you know, is this uh, sycophantic sort of attitude that they're almost better than, and they're patronizing people of color and that people of color you know really owe something to the left when we owe them nothing Mm -hmm. we have our own neighborhoods we have our own cultures we have our own dictates that we really adhere to and family and family values and community and those types of things are huge to us and i think they've really sort of lost the narrative there and so politically we're in a very strange arena right now And now a word from our sponsor, Cambria. Cambria is an open, innovative platform designed to accelerate the development and adoption of impactful robots. Developers can build projects on the Cambria codebase using the KDNA coding language, then submit it for payouts in CAT token. Cambria aims to put robots in the hands of billions of people. Cambria's partners include Carnegie Mellon, Stanford, Autodesk, JVN Institute, and more. Cambria plans its beta release and tokens in the third quarter of 2018 and for its full launch in the second quarter of 2019. For more information, check out Cambria.io. That's K-A-M-B-R-I-A.io to check out their roadmap, their partners, their tokens, and their innovative solution for bringing robots to the masses. Now, back to our show. We're talking about a lot about division right now. We're talking about the division yeah. between, you know, blacks and whites and Muslims and, you know, different religion and things like that. So with these different divides. This is the story of the one. 
As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply that we're talking about, yet we still keep talking about the liberal, conservative, Republican-Democrat divide, and that idea and that narrative is rather combative. Is this the right conversation to be having? The right conversation is the fact that we're starting to say, listen, we need to come to grips with the fact that people have differing views, and we have to understand that at the end of the day, we're all just Americans. I mean, regardless of what you are in the outside, we all bleed red. We all have only one place that we call home, but we we also have to deal with the complicated issues of geopolitics, national security and migration. You know, these are issues that other countries haven't dealt with so well. You know, there's a lot of ire in how we're dealing with them here. Mm -hmm. But I also I keep raising the issue. I'm like, great. You want to take all these people who's paying for them, you know? This is one of the big contentious issues of the last election is that you go to California. Why is it that an immigrant that just got here can get health insurance and can get on the dole, but a single mother in my neighborhood is having trouble just getting enough sustenance so that she can go and find daycare to get a job? Right. Okay. So it's great. Let's figure out a way to do that. But maybe that comes from a marijuana tax. Maybe that comes from a crypto tax. Maybe that comes from something else. You know, it's it's the joke I make that, like, every single time someone in Hollywood wants to say that they're doing something, they go and adopt a black child from Africa. I'm like, what did you do for your local neighborhoods? Like, what did you do? Why can't you go and adopt a kid from Compton? Yep. You know? Like, like, what is this? And I think that that sort of double standard is something we're going to see breaking. You know, that wheel is going to break in going into the 2020s. But I I think as a culture, as as Americans, we're going to have to find it within ourselves to understand that we live inside of a new diversity, a diversity of religious people and non-religious people, a diversity of straight people, a diversity of gay people, and a diversity that is all going to live in the blockchain. Again, we're on this diversity thing, and I really love, you know, crypto really brings people together. Like for Crypto 101, we have a small team. They're from, you know, Australia, South America, Indonesia, all over the world. There's no way I could ever do this podcast without cryptocurrency and bridge those gaps and have everybody work together. We keep talking about divide and we keep saying how, you know, things are getting better. But what do you think the source of this divide is? Because you watch TV, you see there's divide. You watch the news, you see there's divide. But at the same time, I'm living in Taiwan. I don't see any attention there. I know good people back in Cleveland. I know good people back in New York. Uh, I know good people all over the United States. And there isn't any contention. There is no divide unless you start turning on the TV. Do you see that too? Or is the TV actually the media really representative of what the problems are? The media is representative of two things. It's representative of the extremes. So the polar opposites that you see, you know, they're, they're happy covering the Klan on one side and Antifa on the other. But I got to tell you this. 
ask nine people out of ten and they don't know anyone in the clan or in antifa okay <laughs> um they don't it's true and when you have these tropes echoed over and over again in the media you know, the media has always really been a divisive medium pun not intended to really influence the american discourse around specific issues and i think that the problem we have right now is to trump's point is that they're not being fair or logical i mean we just abated world war three and they're saying well what about this 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 and this and it's like i think the goal here was to abate world war three not to make kim responsible for the horrific way he's treated his own people right you know, but it's kind of like instead of being able to solve simple problems simply, which I think Trump is doing, what everyone wants to do is solve a complicated problem in a complicated way. And that doesn't necessarily work. I mean, you look at something like what was negotiated in terms of the peace in between the Palestinians and the Israelis in Oslo, and you start digging into that, and it's like, oh, well, that didn't take any of the religious people into account from either side. And that's why that stuff started falling apart. And that's why we continue to be where we are today, is because people will not address the issue simply and say, okay, well, how do we solve this for the religious people? Great. And how do we solve it for the secular people? Great. And how do we solve it next? And to the big issues in America, you know, I think people need to stop thinking they're special. You are not special. No one is special. Mm -hmm. But what you are is someone who's part of a whole of a community that can do things and make things better. And as soon as we stop throwing these tropes on ourselves and these decorative amulets that everyone wants to carry, that's like, I am this and I am that. It's like, that's fantastic. But you know, that does nothing for me. That does nothing for this conversation. What can we do to build things together? That's really the conversation we should be having. And I think one media does not allow you to get to that. You know, I did something called Shades of Red and Blue last year, which was on C-SPAN, still online. And that was with the Australian Ethics Center. I mean, I even put them in touch with Steve Bannon to see if, you know, they can get him to speak on some of these issues. And, and I think that the problem is, is that we live in even a dating community. If you go on Tinder or anything else, it's like, if you voted for Trump, don't talk to me. And I'm like, <laughs> it, 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 is our attitude such that, you know, and I mean, I like, I look back at like what's been said to me, like, like you're a Muslim, don't talk to me like my entire life. Or like your friend is black, fuck off, you know? And, mm. and it's just like, what exactly is the difference in between this rhetoric and that rhetoric? And people are going to say oh, it's political, it's this, it's that. But it's like, you, you have people that are coming from different views, really wanting to make the country better. You have, you know, one political group, the Democrats, which really sort of lost their entire script in losing the election and now are regrouping. But now you have another group, the Republicans, that are trying to be like on one side. Yeah, they're cutting a little bit too much in terms of some policies, you may say. But again, ask the question is, is it government's job to do a lot of these things or is it just government's job to do what we expected it to do, which is to run as a republic to make sure that funds are efficiently allocated to communities and then put the responsibility in the communities to really start shaping themselves the way that they would like to be shaped. And I think it's potentially a big portion of the latter, but getting us through this cultural change, which we, it was shock and awe, right? right. Uh, I mean, people did not expect that something like this could happen. And now here we are in the midst of political upheaval that's yielding results that we couldn't get for 50 years.
I'm going to stay ahead of the comments. I'm going to stay ahead of everybody that's going to write me emails after a political discussion in a cryptocurrency podcast, because I know what everybody's going to say, because this has happened before, is your mm -hmm. podcast is about cryptocurrency. Why are you talking about politics? And my reply to that specific email was, we have to talk about everything when we're talking about cryptocurrency, because cryptocurrency and blockchain is going to touch every aspect of our daily life eventually. What do you go. think? Well, I'll put it to you this way. If you Google me and Google WBF, there's a 16-minute conversation that I give on regulations in crypto. And the things that we have to be very, very acutely informed about are not just what is going on politically in this country, but really where do the political leaders lie with their purviews and their precepts on what crypto is and, and how crypto should be used. I mean, Dianne Feinstein had put a bill on the floor wanting to basically kibosh crypto because very much like encryption and other things before, they didn't understand it, so kill it. On the opposite side of the aisle, you have the head of the CFTC who's basically saying, we owe it to this community to let it develop and work with it in order to put regulations in place that are meaningful. You know, I'm working on a group right now called the Crypto Compliance Consortium. And, you know, Apollo Ono and, you know, some of the folks from Omega One and, you know, a variety of other folks are involved inside of this. What we're looking to do is to kind of say that as the United States has now come forth and said that Bitcoin and Ether are to be treated kind of like money, Right. Right. Now, what we need to do is we need to have more uniform standards on a global basis such that we can actually engage in effective trade and commerce and allow this industry to grow. Because we're barely at the precepts of this and people are screaming about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So all of this needs to be understood. People need to think about this this way. Everything that we typically look at is like a sheet of paper. It has two edges. OK, it's either A or B. Crypto is like taking that sheet of paper and putting it into a roll. Everything has multiple sides to it, mm -hmm. and it has multiple perspectives based upon how you're looking at it. And those perspectives are first political on a country-by-country -country basis, then regulatory on a region-by-region -region basis, and then economic in terms of what the impacts are and how people use this. I just had a conversation with one of my Korean colleagues, and it was along the lines that they can only trade on seven exchanges inside of their country, but there's more that they're doing to try and educate the government so they can have a proliferation of crypto. Um, if you look at what's going on in Japan, you know, Japan had put business improvement letters out to a number of different crypto exchanges and shut them down because they were doing nefarious things like going into people's wallets and taking their crypto out and trading it and then putting it back. So you need to understand this stuff to understand where your country is in terms of this entire discussion around crypto and you know the algorithm of like how you fit into these crypto communities secondarily you need to understand this in terms of what kind of education you need to do for yourself because i'll tell you this right now there are eight open crypto jobs for every single person that wants to get into crypto all right and there's a tremendous amount of folks that just don't know what they're doing out there but, you know, there's a tremendous amount of good folks out there that do know what they're doing and are trying to build really effective projects. And you have to manage and mind yourself in between these things. And then as that's happening, we're also seeing the rise of new systems. Okay, and why do I say go back to politics? Because EOS is now a decentralized system 
that operates on a voting mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. So EOS couldn't actually turn their mainnet on until they had 15% minimum vote, which took them about a week and a half. And when you look at these types of systems, you know, Switzerland has two small towns that are going to be piloting blockchain for voting. Africa has, you know, I think one country that's already looking at it already. Hmm. You have the opportunities to deploy blockchain for identity and validation systems inside of refugee centers across the globe. You have the opportunity to use this to disrupt hunger. Sergio, who's a buddy of mine and was like running most of the UN sessions, now has like 14 different working groups in crypto on everything from water standards to poverty to food delivery. And then you look at things like Lottery.com. I was just with their CEO last Friday, and he's working with Rihanna to put together a fund that's coming out of Lottery.com from that's going to be all crypto funded to go and rebuild all the islands that were hit by hurricanes. Right on. So let that sink in for a second, right? You know, I heard about that. And the first thing I was wondering is, is this just the tip of the iceberg of the media and superstars getting on the crypto train to increase their wealth or their good standing, let's say, in the eyes of the communities or people? Well, look, or whatever. Media, media better be terrified, okay? Because I'll tell you this. I mean, all Nasdaq needs to do is put some TV shows up. You have Seth Shapiro, who's launching an ICO, and it's, again, all around crypto content. You've got Mark Scarpa, who's got Decentric Media. You have our buddies at Joel and Travis at the Bad Crypto Podcast. I mean, you have these types of folks that this is the new news. This is your new information. It's not going on one of the traditional three-letter organizations, crypto shows, where they ask idiotic questions like, is IBM a Bitcoin company? It's obviously a blockchain company now. I understand what Bitcoin has to do with things. And can't you check your script before you go on air to make sure that you're using the right terminology when you're talking about this stuff so you don't sound idiotic? Hmm. We have been patronized by media for several decades, really kind of sitting there and saying that, okay, we'll keep things at a fourth grade or sixth grade or eighth grade English level. We'll communicate to the lowest common denominator. We'll assume that man and woman are stupid. And I think what crypto allows you to do is to not just disrupt all of these mechanisms, but it, it, go and find the content where you want to find it, find the information where you want to find it, get paid or compensated or become part of the ecosystem. Look at Steemit. You know, if you're tired of Facebook, go to Steemit and get involved in the community, start creating your content there, and you're literally getting paid for it. Right. There's clones of Steam in other countries. And then there's the exact opposite of crypto, right? The, which is China right now, which is, uh, you know, everyone's excited about Cyberpunk 2077 coming out. I'm gonna tell you that the Cyberpunk is already live and well, and it's in China where if you buy too many video games, you get demerits. If you, uh, you know, if you no, I mean, like, they'll, lo they'll, they'll lock you out of dating sites. They'll make sure your kids don't go to the right school. You won't be able to get on trains or board planes. I mean, it, it is a dystopian future over there. And they're the ones that don't want crypto. And so, you know, you're going to see the change in democracy and the change in economic systems and the rise of new ways of making money and doing things, but it is going to be from places that you never thought about. Like, Africa has the Kure coin. There's a whole bunch of additional coins that have rolled out on the African subcontinent that are allowing people to do micro-loans and nano-loans and all sorts of stuff that no one thought about. You know, it's I talk about, like, two Bitcoin, 10 grand, 
can change the entire life of someone who wants to build a business right. in the inner cities or in rural America. And, and inner cities and rural America have a lot of things in common. These nano loans are like five bucks. Oh, we get that one hundred thousand Bitcoin, where it's only going to be point one Bitcoin, and it's going to change somebody's life. <laughs> yeah, you know. So think about the impact that that is happening because what blockchain has right now, just from a financial perspective, without the long-term discussion and technological impacts of it, it is it gives you the ability to create value out of thin air inside of ICOs where that additional value or the gas that powers the ecosystem is dollars that you have created based upon how much token you've issued. Right. And we're going to be going through that for a couple of years until there's some major standards, but that allows us to really change the nature of every single traditional debate we're having today and set the stage for a future that is much more of what we want it to be and not some dystopian Matt Damon movie. Well, I guess what I was trying to get at with this original question was we saw Ashton Kushner on The Ellen Show with Ripple. We see Potcoin and Dennis Rodman. We saw Steven Seagal. We saw Rihanna now. It just seems the movie stars are like, hey, you know what? I can make a couple million extra by getting into crypto and promoting an ICO or all this stuff. Is it really good hearted? Is it really good intentioned? Some of it is, some of it isn't. I mean, the joke that Mo Levin makes is that, like, right now all you need is a good idea and a celebrity and someone will, you know, you'll raise your fund. Right. Um, <laughs> and it's true, but I have at least a decent tech team behind that. And there's a bunch of scams that are out there. There's scam ICOs that we're seeing largely in Korea and the Asian subcontinent and a couple of the U.S., but because you have to have accredited investors in the U.S., that kind of limits it a little bit. But, you know, we're moving into this era where on the one side people are going to try and make money and... On the opposite side of this, we're going to have that fraudulent stuff, and that goes back to some of how I got into this. It's stopping crime, stopping trafficking, stopping terror, stopping a bunch of these things. But, you know, doing it in a way that it also works with the ecosystem so the ecosystem proliferates. Because at the end of the day, people have this drive to not just build for themselves, they want to build for their families and their communities. And, you know, that's really the message that crypto brings from an economic standpoint. From the technology standpoint, we could probably talk for another hour, but the technology standpoint is it has the ability to replace any kind of middleman system or ledger system that's out there. And that's powerful because right. now, you know, you could be halfway around the world. And I know because I'm using the system, there's value and there's trust and I can just put my faith in the system and it works. As, so we went through a lot of stuff, and we went through, we have to know about politics, we have to know about regulation, we have to start understanding how crypto blockchain is going to start moving through our society, our communities. And then you talked about self-education. Well, once you have all of that, what is the first step for you to educate others? How do you reach out to others, and what would you suggest to those people who are already at that third step? If you're ready to educate others, I mean, listen, if you're in New York, just reach out to me because I could use a bunch of folks up here and, I, you know, we could put some interesting stuff together that's either through the CUNY facilities or some of the churches or one of the mosques up here. But if you are in your own community, what I'll say is, is basically this. Communities need people who are looking for existing organizations like in the Bronx and Brooklyn and part of Harlem, we have Perskolas, right? 
And what they're trying to do is get kids into basically get them that leg up so that, you know, they actually get into these jobs that they wouldn't get into because they, they might think that the only opportunity I have is a cleaning job or a janitorial job or working for the electric company. And they could go into either crypto or security or cybersecurity and be making forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. There's that. There's Usher's new look. I got to give those people a lot of credit. And you know, I don't think people know enough about Usher, but he invested in education twenty years ago. Okay. Mm. And so you know, if you see Usher, you give that man a handshake. Um, I, I did. I met him in Shanghai. Yeah, I mean, and he, he doesn't, he's humble. He doesn't talk about this stuff. And that's really kind of what we need with this. But what, what we really need is people reaching out to organizations like that. And the first thing that we need in America is we need mentors. We don't have enough of them. Okay. And so what I can say is, you know, it used to be the big brothers and the big sisters of America. What we need is the crypto brothers and crypto sisters of America. The second thing. I think that we can do with this is that you can reach out to folks like me and we can brainstorm a little bit. I don't have a ton of time, but I always have, you know, my door open for someone who says, Hey, I've got access to a little bit of capital and I have access to some folks that want to change things. How can we work together? And I think it's building this decentralized network of people with similar intents and ideas so that we can really just kind of help each other. Because look, if we're helping people, it's not like you're stealing my idea and making more money for you. What we're doing is making more money for our communities by helping everyone get the come up. Right. The third thing I would say is this, is that if you are in a corporation, if you have the opportunity to touch the lives of anyone of color, anyone who is female, or anyone who is a child, if you can have any impact on their lives, it is pretty much your personal mandate, and this is coming from me, that you should at least have a conversation with them. Because what I find is this, and, and this is what hasn't worked about our educational system, it's always very parochial where we just kind of shove something down your throat. It's like, eat this horrible cheese sandwich, do this, you know. And I think what it has to be is like talking to people and pulling some thoughts out of them. Well, where don't you make money? How could you do better? What would be beneficial in your life? And then from that conversation, tailoring a conversation around anything related to this ecosystem and how people can get involved. Because I'm going to tell you this. This is going to be way bigger than tech in 96. Every single industry is going to be affected. And every single industry is going to have some sort of blockchain type system that comes in and either disrupts or changes how they do business. And if it hasn't touched you yet, trust me, by the end of 2024, we will not be living in the same world as we know it today. As before we get off the conversation, I want to say first, thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you for talking to us about different ideas, different philosophies, different politics and different ways for people to start through that 101 level, get up to education level and then start helping their communities and fellow man getting into crypto. Well, thank you. Um, like, look, we need more conversations like this and, you know, train yourself up in crypto and figure out different ways to do stuff. And, and also, the last thing I'll leave you with, there's capstone programs we have here in New York. I mean, there's stuff that I'm probably going to be rolling out in the next year. But, you know, I'm trying to figure out ways to get folks into these ecosystems quicker because we've got generations of Gen Zers out there. I mean, Gen Z right now in America is like roughly 68 or 70 million people. Okay, that's mm -hmm. a lot. And that's talking like 21 and under. Right. So, you know, the thought process here is if there's ways for us to get them better engaged, 
that's where the big change is going to happen. And it can happen within a generation. People don't expect that. But you could have some massive earth-shattering, ground-shaking change. And it could be across all sorts of systems as well. You know, politically, Gen Z is more conservative than any generation before them. They realize they've had about four or five generations worth of damage to them. And they want change. (laughs) They want change. My typical last question ending this podcast is always that Crypto 101 is positioning itself to be the 101 spot. And we want to go through everything from education to normal, just simple blockchain words to blockchain slang and, you know, those kinds of things. We have technical talk. We have people come in here and talk about, you know, really the nuts and bolts of cryptocurrency philosophy. So this very well could be somebody's first step getting into cryptocurrency. What advice would Oz Salton give that person if this was their first stop down that rabbit hole? If this is their first stop down that rabbit hole, the first thing you should do is go and find three ICOs that you like and go read their white papers. You're not going to understand everything you're reading. From there, go and check out Joel and Travis's podcast and listen to a couple of folks who are some thought leaders inside of this arena. And then third is that MIT has a curricula that's coming out this fall. It's going to be one of the first crypto curriculas that's out there. That's something you can kind of probably find through Open University online. And if you can't find it there, figure out a segment of the crypto universe that you want to be in and start researching towards that end. Because mark my words, if you go and you chase this and you are passionate and driven enough to find yourself in a position of learning some of these things, the jobs and the opportunities will come to you. You will obviously have to be in a city where that exists. You know, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, San Francisco, parts of Texas are now all crypto hubs. And so it's an interesting time for innovation, and it's an interesting time where you can kind of pick your own adventure. You can see where it takes you. Does it take you into development? Does it take you into finance? Does it take you into fundraising? Does it take you into marketing? Does it take you into social media? Because all of these things are there. They're just really different inside of crypto. Right on. Oz, thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much for that advice. Oh, and by the way, we had Joel Emery on our sister podcast, ICO 101, about two months ago. Joel's my business partner, and we are working on putting together the first SEC-authorized crypto hedge fund in the United States. We can talk about that once that thing's authorized, but um, yeah, we yeah I mean, the, the goal here is let's change the game a little bit, and let's see what we can do to, you know, just kind of start making things better. Right on. Oz, thank you very much for your morning, and you enjoy the rest of your day, and I'm going to go have a beer and enjoy the rest of my night. All right. You have fun. Talk Thanks, Oz. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of crypto 101 if you like this episode please head over to the youtube channel where i'm going to round up this episode and tell you my personal opinion about talking to Oz. and in our next episode we have on the founder and ceo of streamer aka datacoin to talk about what are smart cities the future of the internet of things and how datacoin is going to protect your data when it's talking to your coffee maker as always apogeecrypto.com that's a-p-o-g-e-e crypto.com the best place to check your real-time prices cryptonews.com the best place for your crypto news and of course wponthefly.co the best place to get a website done as for june tell her i sent you we'll see you in the next episode of crypto 101 this is matthew aaron thank you very much
Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, Our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.